is What's Your Medicine, and I'm your host, Dr. Josh Levitt, and I am so grateful to have you here. So on this show, we define, demystify, and discuss medicine in the broadest possible way. And I promise you that the medicine we are talking about on our first show here today is going to blow your mind. We're going to jump right into all of it in just a minute. But before I do, I want to remind you to text the letters P-O-D to 51472 to join the What's Your Medicine community. You'll get early access to new episodes, live Q&As with me. We've got some amazing member giveaways and all sorts of great stuff for you. So text P as in podcast, O-D as in dog to 51472 right now to get on that list. What's Your Medicine is brought to you by Up Wellness. Now, for most people, the word medicine means pills from a pharmacy. And sure, they are medicine. But as you are going to hear on today's show, medicine can be, medicine should be much, much more than that. And the good people at Up Wellness, well, they understand that. Of course, as the person who formulated their products, I'm a little bit biased, but the Up Wellness lineup of nutritional and herbal supplements are my first line go-to medicines, and I think that they should be yours too. And What's Your Medicine listeners can get a full 30% off anything you buy at upwellness.com by using the code WYM at checkout. That's WYM, which stands for What's Your Medicine at checkout, for a full 30% off any purchase at upwellness.com. My guest today is Paul Turner from Yale University where the work he does in his lab has made him one of the world's leading experts in, get this, using viruses as medicine. So here's the deal. Most of us think of viruses as a bad thing and sure, they certainly can be. But Dr. Turner has flipped the script and is pioneering the use of viruses to kill even the most dangerous drug resistant bacteria. It sounds like science fiction, I know, but it's real and it is here on this show today. That's my welcome to you, Paul. Hi, Paul. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate it, Josh. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. Yeah, let's yeah. Let's see how it goes. This is great. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start, like, I'm going to start with a tangent. And the tangent is um, about going viral, hmm. right? Because going viral, I suppose if any of my episodes on this show are going to go viral, it should be this one. Sure. And I actually looked into this. Like, I did my homework before this. We started using the word going viral in reference to uh, marketing videos and whatnot about uh, 2000, early 2000s. So, like, less than 20 years ago. But, like, you've been going viral a lot longer than that, am I yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So, I've been studying viruses for uh, roughly 30 years. But the idea of going viral and what can we call it, virotherapy? Yeah. It's always intrigued me. Yeah. I mean, the world's full of problems, health problems, as we know. And the question is, can you use viruses to help tackle them? Right, right. And that will be the subject that we'll get into. It's remarkable that the term, and, you know, the last three years, if that's taught us anything, like, it, it, it turns out that, like, in the discussion about going viral, you know, this is, a, this is a word that gets used in marketing. I'm not talking about biology. I'm talking about, you know, viral marketing and viral internet videos and whatnot um, was, like, there was a huge upsurge in the use of that term. And then this pandemic comes from a, caused by a coronavirus, of course. And then, like, people 
people started to like get a little skittish about saying going viral, right? So the term going viral started to go down. Maybe we need a new term. Maybe you know? we do. <laughs> yeah. After a global pandemic, um, I think that's probably maybe not the best term. Um, so before we get into the use of viruses as medicine, just to like sort of frame the conversation, and this is something that's maybe, I know debated, it's something that's bugged me for a while, but like, let's just have a quick conversation about viruses in general. And the big question that I have for you is whether or not they are alive. Mm. And, and, you know, we have, we have a limited amount of time, so we don't need to get sure. into a long discussion about this, but, but are viruses alive or not? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a classic one, and I think the problem is there's many definitions of life. Mm. And if you consider life to be able to be, I don't know, physiologically active and to be something like a cell, then viruses are on the out. They're and not alive. They're, they're not. They're not alive if you think metabolism uh-huh. is the thing that constitutes life. But I don't think that way. Uh-huh. I think that the ability for biological stuff to have traits move across generations uh-huh. through genetics and to uh, change through time with evolution means that they are living. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think viruses are on the end, uh-huh. that they should be considered living because they have those properties. Interesting. Yeah, I've always thought about it kind of like there's like organized cellular structure. You know, that's something that could constitute life, right? Like locomotion, that's a pretty simple one. Um, the ability to reproduce. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, sure. you know, so like, yeah, from that perspective, it seems like they, I mean, obviously it's nuanced, right? There's a, there's a, there's a question there, whether or not they meet that criteria. And, and I guess the reason why I'm asking is because in my world, in natural medicine, and, and I think in medicine, not just in natural medicine, virus, like we talk about killing viruses a yes. lot, right? Yes. Like, I mean, yeah. we talk about it, whether we're talking about a coronavirus okay. or we're talking about natural products or drugs, like and I guess the question that I had is like, how can you kill something that's not alive? Right? <laughs> Good point. That's true. If you're not going to define them as living, then yeah. you shouldn't be able to kill them right. because I they're mean, not alive in the first place. Indeed. Like, I might be guilty of that myself. Like, if viruses aren't alive, then why did I ever say, you know, that this plant extract or this whatever is... An- like, what is... Like, maybe that's the discussion. Like, there's stuff that's antiviral. I think that's yes. pretty well established, right? Like, there's plant medicines, there's drugs, there's, you know, all sorts of things that are classified as antiviral. Like, what is something i mean as a virologist right who studies this sort of thing like what is something that's antiviral yeah so as we've seen during the pandemic it's actually hard to come up with something that's antiviral mm. i mean if we can just go quickly to antibiotics and people know what these are they're specifically to killing bacterial cells so you can consume them mm. and as long as you're not worried about killing the microbes that might be doing you some good the bacteria then you know sure. they're not going to interfere much with your own cells yeah and antivirals are different so it's hard to find an antiviral yeah. because the business of what they need to do yeah. is killing some virus that's largely already causing you a problem because it's already in your cells. So it's the toxics, the right. toxic effects that worry us with antivirals. Yeah, and it's and I'm sure that question of life kind of fits its way in there somewhere, right? Because you know the the kind of definition, and I'm I'm with you on that. Viruses may be alive based on metabolism and the way that they their genes and whatnot evolve through through generations, but. Um, they don't have the same kind of metabolism exactly. and and whatnot that you know that 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 that's, that cells have, and so a lot of the targets for the things that we use to kill cells, like bacteria and others, are are not they, they don't apply here. Yeah, I agree. They don't apply. Yeah. So I mean, fundamentally, what a virus is trying to do? They're trying to interact with cells to tell cells to make copies of the viruses. Mm-hmm. So antivirals are mostly things that mess up that 
business of copying within yeah. cells, and it prevents viruses from making copies. And so it's really those are what we rely on for most antivirals. Yeah, you're really down on the level yeah. of genetics. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're preventing viruses from making copies of themselves. And, yeah. you know, if you pull that off, then you've got a pretty good antiviral. Right. It has to be specific against some virus you care about. Yeah, but yeah. That's kind of what we're trying to shoot for. Yeah, and I mean, and, and that brings up the, sort of the next question. And, there, you know, there, there's an old scientist, Paracelsus, right, who said this, this famous line that we use in medicine and toxicology all the time, which is like the dose makes the poison, mm. right? The idea that like there's lots of things out there in the world, including simple things like water, for example, that um, that in the appropriate dose are healthy, healing, beneficial, whatever you want to call it, that, but in a uh, massive dose could be toxic, uh, even producing death, right? And water is an example and basically any other, <laughs> there's many substances that fit the same criteria. Um, Viruses, I think most people think of them as generally bad. I mean, that's like, that's the idea. Yeah, so this is the problem, is that we pay the most attention to things that cause us harm. Of course. So the expectation for most humans is you mention virus and they immediately get scared. Yeah. That it's something out to get them, which yeah. is not true. I mean, we are basically living in a planet full of viruses. Mm. They're the most abundant thing on the planet. Mm. So if they were all out to get us, we would have been gone long ago. Yeah, isn't there some number, like, in a teaspoon of seawater, there's like, you know, I mean, the, the amount of viruses that are in there is in the trillions or something ridiculously oh, yes. high number like that. Oh, it's crazy the number of viruses you can get kind of per volume. But if you consider all the pain and woe of SARS coronavirus, you could fit all of those particles into like an empty Coke can. <laughs> I mean, in the whole history of the time of the pandemic so far. You know, that's how small they are. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, and there's so many more of them that are at the very least innocuous. Oh, totally. Right. If not doing us some good. I mean, the problem is that this stuff is understudied because it's poorly, and it's hard to study. Yeah. So undoubtedly, there are virus, viruses that interact with us and actually do us some good. Yeah. They protect us from other viruses infecting us in complicated ways we don't have to get into, but yeah. we should not think that all viruses are out to get us. Yeah, right, that's, right. that's just not the way the world that's works. That's just not true. It's interesting to me that you got into it, and I'm and I'm sure, and there's probably a whole conversation around like your history, your academic history, working through the labs that you worked through all, all these years in different universities. But like I remember the study of microbiology and viruses seemed at that time, which was kind of on par at the time that you were coming up through too, so small that like they didn't captivate me in that way because I couldn't see them. Like I don't know, there was something about me and like wanting to like uh, work on systems that I could understand, like a knee or a heart, you know, or a shoulder, right? Sure. Like by biological systems that are on a macroscopic level what, what was the in you know and, and the viruses were so tiny that I couldn't even look under a microscope and see them right it, you know unless I had a specialized microscope which I'm sure you have how'd you get into it yeah so that's a good question I mean I always grew up loving biodiversity mm. that's visible mm. which is how most people get jazzed about biodiversity plants you know, animals birds. plants animals things you see in your environment you yeah, look at sure. tv and books mm. but you know when I started figuring out that microbes especially viruses have this elegance to them that's largely mm. invisible I mean, they're sub-microscopic. We don't have the tools to see them easily. Yeah. But when you start looking at their, I don't know, body plans, morphology, I mean, it's really elegantly beautiful, uh -huh. tiny, tiny stuff. So wow. I started to surprise myself with how uh -huh. geeked out I was over this kind of invisible biodiversity. Right. That really is the majority of what's on the planet. So if people don't appreciate that, then we're really yeah. kind of underselling and underappreciating biodiversity. That's a good point. I mean, maybe I got to get into it now. Like, I, I'm with you on that. The plants, the shape of the leaf, the flowers, their delicateness, the birds, the color of their feathers, all that sort of stuff. And now we're talking about that kind of... I mean, that's a good word. I mean, you know, of elegance or beauty. You know. But if I could jump in, I mean, many of the things that we appreciate, let's just say in the plant world, yeah. you know, there's 
color patterns in flowers that appreciate us. A lot of times they have stripes and sort of broken color. That's often because they're infected by a virus. <laughs> and it messes up the color Fascinating. in the plants and in the flower. Uh-huh. But, you know, back in, what, the 1600s or so, uh-huh. in the Dutch kind of craze of tulips and uh, special colors in tulips, bulbs that were creating these broken colors, these were the most valuable ones. Yeah. And nobody knew at the time. They were they just were infected. infected by virus. <laughs> right. It's kind of like wow. trivial. These wow, days. right. And I'm a huge fan, right, of these of these plants that we put in our gardens every year, the daffodils and the tulips and all those different hybrids, hybrid species. And I never, never really thought about the role that microbes, including viruses, played in the macroscopic biodiversity that we appreciate every day. I yeah. think that that's what really kind of had me appreciate even more biodiversity is the interactions that yeah. viruses have with their hosts. Yeah. It could be harmful or they could be beneficial, but the point is that they're often controlling these traits yeah. that we see all the time, even in ourselves. Mm. So we have to really be aware of the virus world around us. When did people like? When did people figure out that viruses were even a thing? Yeah, so it wasn't that long ago. Mm. I mean, it was really in the early 1900s that the information became plentiful enough and infected, virus, uh, infected plants, uh, especially. That's where it started. Yeah, uh-huh. and somewhat also an infected bacteria. Um, so the, our power to explore lots of different biological creatures Along those same times, the early 1900s, is when we developed enough microscopy to really see virus structures. And they could, they, in the early 1900s, that's when the microscopes were good enough to be able to say, there's yeah, something here. Yeah, there were a, a lot of, yeah, a lot of leading figures in early microscopy. Those date back to the 1800s, but the power of these to see things at the virus level, eh, that, that took until really 20s and 30s, 1920s wow. and 30s. I mean, uh-huh. it took a long time. It's interesting to me, you know, I, I, you see here next to me this collection, uh, just a small part of my collection of vintage medical bottles. I'm fascinated by, by the old, right? And, and, and maybe not so fascinated by the old, but one thing that intrigues me is the idea, and this happens, I think, is, is this a uniquely American thing, I think, that we come up with the new and then get rid of the old, right? Yeah. Like we've seen this in many, I mean, you're a music lover just like me too, right? And music is a great example, right? Like vinyl records turn into eight track tapes, turn into cassette tapes, turn into CDs, turn into solid state media, right? And with each like new generation, it seems to me that like, now we got eight tracks, let's get rid of the vinyl. Now we got cassettes, let's get rid of the eight tracks and so on. I mean, there's just, you know, I can't even imagine the, the gold mine that is in dumps, you know, of vinyl and whatever. Now these things are coming back. And I think in medicine, we've done that too, right? There was stuff that worked, stuff that was part of our pharmacopoeia. Then the new thing comes out and then we get rid of the old. And it seems to me, and you're the right person to ask, that that happens with lots of things in medicine, including with antibiotics. Totally right. agree. Yeah. So by the time antibiotics came around and were accidentally discovered by Fleming, everybody who could afford it jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. And it's interesting that some technology that predated it involving viruses to solve infection problems, mm. it was pretty good stuff. Right. Just the tools were crude and people didn't understand so yeah, much what they yeah. were working with. We got to get into this. So like, as I understand it, and my dates might be a little bit off, but the, the widespread use of penicillin begins like World War II time-ish, right? 1940s or something like that. Yes. Right. But we knew that infections, bad infections were killing soldiers on the battlefield and kids with rheumatic fever and whatever long before that. We knew the bacteria. We just didn't know how to kill them that well. So people were trying all sorts of different stuff. And you're saying that they were trying to use viruses to kill bacteria yeah. even before that. Yeah, it was one of these enemy is my enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, where the realization that if you had something that would kill bacteria and if it was biological and it was a virus, use it. 
yeah. because you didn't have much else that you could leverage. Right. And when antibiotics came along and replaced that, I agree with you. That technology seemed, oh, immediately outdated, and why would we focus on that when yeah. we've got chemicals right. to solve the problem? Right, out with the vinyl records. Yeah, right, with out the the vinyl, in with the anthrax tapes. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and circa 1917, yeah. I think the most instrumental early person doing this work of taking viruses and having them solve infection problems mm. was Felix Durrell. Mm. And he actually did some of his work nearby here at mm. Yale University for a handful of years. But he is a person who discovered these viruses that could do some good yeah. because they could kill bacterial infection. It's amazing. And this is this is the nature of your work now. And I think it's a good sort of uh, point within our conversation to start talking about these sort of more specifically. And this is where things, I mean, to me, like I've seen you out and about for many, many years and I've followed your work and it's always just like, I can't even believe this is real. This this this, this sort well, first, of stuff that thank you're thank you doing. for being yeah. a groupie. I appreciate that. <laughs> groupie. But uh, yeah. I also can't believe it's real either. Yeah. I mean, it really makes me want to do more yeah. to probe at why it, works when it does work is yeah. that it seems a bit like science fiction yeah really yeah it yeah. certainly does so let's let, let's 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 get into that um so i think i th i think a good place to start this conversation is here in connecticut at a place as i did my homework as an interviewer here called dodge pond right yes. first of all so where is dodge pond and why <laughs> is dodge pond part of our conversation yes yeah, so strangely dodge pond is going to be part of our conversation it's not far from here it's to the east of of us in uh, connecticut it's actually a super fun site so you can't really oh. do much recreational oh, it's stuff there. There. It's toxic. Toxic. <laughs> but it turns out an aquatic ecology lab some mm. of our counterparts our colleagues in our building bring water into our building from dodge pond all the time because they're studying the fish there mm. but the point is we started to include it in the samples where we were exploring to find new viruses uh -huh. that might be able to prob problem solve for human problems that are hard to solve and like we said earlier whether it's super fun pond water from Dodge Pond or ocean water or whatever. There's trillions, am I right about that, of viruses in, in the water? There's about 10 to the 31 virus particles on this planet at any one time. For a number unfathomably large. Yeah. But it literally is a number that's too big for humans to grapple with. Yeah. But it just outnumbers other stuff. And my point is you could go to some obscure small lake called Dodge Pond, and you might just find something terrifically interesting for medicine, mm -hmm. but it's unclear actually where to look. Mm -hmm. And I would say a lot of this is currently serendipity. Yeah, like so you're just getting lucky. Yeah. yeah, just looking around yeah. and finding what you can find to fit a goal of something you're looking for. I don't want to be vague, but that's kind of what we do. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially what we do. Right. Right. You, you're just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what's sort of in a very scientific and high tech way. <laughs> I agree. Um, but like, so now let, let's get into it. Like these, these, these viruses, they're not just called viruses, right? You use a different term. Yeah. They have a special term. The long form of it is called bacteriophage. And that just means eater of bacteria. And that's a long term. So we usually shorten it just to phage. Phage Some people pronounce eater. it as phage. I've done uh, pronounces phage yeah. yeah phage means eater so bacteria exactly. eater so these so the word means that these viruses infect and break open or kill That's or right. eat bacteria That's in their process of infecting a bacterial cell and making copies at the end of that it's bad news for the bacteria yeah it blows open it's killed in the process and all these little baby viruses these phages are released and can go on and infect other cells of similar type That's remarkable and the, I, and so the, the reason why the phage science is so important, I think, is because we were talking about, like, just back 
for a second to the antibiotic idea, right? The antibiotics get invented or not even invented, more like discovered and then put into use. And then now we find ourselves in some trouble as a result of that. You know, if, if penicillin was first being used in 1940s, here we are not even 100 years later. And I think most of my listeners, most everybody out there is aware of the problem that antibiotics have created. Let's talk about that yeah. for a minute and then jump back into first, dodge, let me you know, congratulate yeah. you on. I think you have an informed group that's listening, really, yeah. because I believe the average person does not understand the gravity mm. of the antibiotic resistance problem. Mm -hmm. And we are just running out of usefulness of antibiotics that have definitely saved countless lives. Yeah. But they're just not working well at all these days against yeah. some bacterial targets. So we need something else. And uh, these phages might be a solution. Yeah, we are in, I mean, I've seen countless cases. I think anybody who's out there in the world of medicine um, probably loses a little bit of sleep over this, right? People just getting a nick or a wound in their skin or having a more significant thing because they have a chronic disease, they're vulnerable in some way, getting infected by an organism that we do not have any drugs to kill. Exactly. Right, like natural products can maybe fill a little bit of that gap. Garlic's great you know things like that but i think you know there's some limits to what we can do with natural products so and and maybe we should talk just for a minute about like the the incentives and the way that they're so perverse right like i mean why we're so good at developing drugs for all sorts of different things um but antibiotic drug discovery seems like it's just not really happening. yeah it's kind of running out so yeah. as you said earlier it's kind of like we're discovering things that exist anyway for the most part mm -hmm. you know antibiotics have been on this planet for billions of years sure. because bacteria and fungi etc use them against each other yeah. and fleming happened to discover them yeah. so now that we have found them looking in nature we're kind of running out of new discoveries of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we synthesize them sometimes, but they're mm. kind of just acting in the same way as existing antibiotics. Mm. So if I could go to, Fleming cautioned people during his Nobel Prize speech. And he, he said that, you know, if we're not careful with this technology uh. and we overuse it, we're gonna have a problem because the bacteria are going to resist it. And that's basically what we've done he in was the right. last 100 years. He yeah. was right. We did a big, uncontrolled experiment around the world, yeah. distributed these out, used them widely, and now the bacteria have evolved. They've changed to a standard. I mean, their populations, they, they make a new generation every few hours, yes. right? So it's very, their, their evolution is very quick, right? And they can quickly develop shields and different methods by which to resist the action of an antibiotic. And then when you run out of antibiotics, you're in bad you're in shape. You're in bad trouble. I mean, yeah. you've kind of worked your way down a list, yeah. and it's not a lengthy list, Right. You know, some patients, as you know, they run out of any options very quickly. Yeah, yeah. right. It is, it is, it is scary. Um, I mean, one more thing that scares me is that essentially lots of people have vulnerability to infections of some sort, yeah. especially bacterial infections. And if you think of the world becoming more populated with these antibiotic-resistant variants, mm -hmm. that's a collision course to a problem. Yeah. I mean, you're basically living your life either at home, in your workplace, whatever, you're just living your life, and if the average infection is more resistant to antibiotics, that's going to produce problems for everyone. Yes. But it's especially going to produce problems for people who are vulnerable to these infections. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. They're the most danger of all. I mean, imagine anybody out there just having a run-of-the-mill infection that you would take antibiotics for. Maybe a urinary tract infection, conjunctivitis in your eye, strep throat, you know, a skin infection on your skin where you put a topical antibiotic on there underneath the Band-Aid. But just imagine that, like, it just didn't work. Right, like it just kept getting worse, and then you tried a ne the next one, and that didn't work either. And then you tried another one, and that didn't work either. And then the doctor was like, 
um, we don't have any more left. And, and unfortunately, this is kind of like a reminder that there was a pre-antibiotic era where all this stuff happened all the time. Yeah. And I think in typical human style, yeah. you know, we've grown to be enamored of our modern technology. Yeah. And people just literally do not think yeah. about that era because they've never lived through it. Yeah. And they have too many, you know... Older relatives yeah. are long, long over, they're not around anymore. Yeah. They, they haven't lived through it either. Sure. So, so this is really possible that we go back to a pre-antibiotic era. And we need we you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about phages. I promise. We're gonna dive into Dodge Pond. You know, toxic or not. But, <laughs> toxic um, or not. We're going in. <laughs> but like, but it, I think you bring up a point that I can't help but emphasize, which is that in that pre-antibiotic era, like there's a couple of things that were really really important. Which is like I think our I don't know if you would agree with me, but I think the human immune system is like the best antibiotic that was ever invented right like you know our immune system is amazing at doing it disposing of identifying you know inactivating and disposing of these organisms really really well but it needs good nutrition it needs a good lifestyle it needs a non-toxic environment you know it need, you know so i think like you know if if we start running out of drugs right or and and revert back to like a pre-antibiotic era we're gonna need to learn how to take care of ourselves and not keep relying on like the next pipeline line of the fancy new therapeutic. Yes. Right? I think there are many ways we could take better care of ourselves. Yeah. And we've become a little, well, I don't know, dare I say reliant, overly reliant on mm. some of these technologies to yeah. do the job for us. Yeah. But yeah, we need to be cognizant of the fact that we have to take care of ourselves. For sure. I mean, doctors deserve all the love and adoration, right? But like, it's like, you know, your health is your responsibility, right? And then when things go sideways, you know, it's great to have doctors that can do surgery on you, that can give you medications and whatnot. But um, yeah, yeah, maybe these sort of scary things are a, um, I don't know, inspiration or motivation for people to take better care of themselves. Yeah, know? but maybe if I could riff on that a little yeah. bit. And essentially, look, phages, they are biologicals. I mean, so chemistry is chemistry, and we've relied on antibiotics. Sure. But what I said a moment ago is that we have synthesized antibiotics as well, mm-hmm. and they are failing also. Mm-hmm. So my point is... There's been a tendency for humans to be inspired by lots of things in the biological world. And I always tell people that's why submarines look the way they do. They look like a shark or an orca or something that has inspired us to design them that way. So essentially, if you have something that naturally kills bacteria and you expect that it has lived alongside, if you consider them living, lived alongside bacteria for billions of years, they're kind of good at doing this. So why not tap into them and see if they can work for us? And to me, that's kind of, we're taking good care of the biology by knowing it and applying it to solve a problem. Yeah, exactly. So you you just kind of like, we, we took a little detour on the path towards Dodge Pond and now we're back, heading back towards the pond, which is great. And so that that's because that's where we want to be. That's the substance of our conversation. So this seawater, or not seawater, pond water comes into the lab, right? And you go looking. Yep. Right? So imagine we What are you down. looking for? Right. Yeah. What are we looking for? Yeah. So we're sitting down at the lab bench and we're looking at maybe these aquatic samples coming from Dodge Pond. Yeah. What we're looking for is whether they have some viruses that are entirely new to science and whether those viruses that are phages can kill some bacteria that we're challenging them to kill mm-hmm. in the laboratory that other phages known to science cannot do that job. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to find the early stages of evidence for a new biological drug. Yeah. And that's what we did with these samples from Dodge Pond. And we found some amazingly useful ones in Amazing. terms of their properties. Yeah. So let's get into it. So did you have, was there a bacterial type, a bacterial species that you were after? Yes. You know, that, that you, you're looking for a virus that kills a bacteria. Which bacteria? Yeah. 
So the bacteria that we were focused on were Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which may mean a whole lot of nothing to your listening mm -hmm. audience. But know this. They are very plentiful. They're in everybody's home. Mm -hmm. And they are in your garden. If you have a garden outside your home, uh, they're in recreational fresh water like a pond yep. if you could swim in it. So they're just around. And the yep. problem is they're becoming increasingly antibiotic resistant. Yep. So we wanted to see could we find phages that are good at killing antibiotic resistant forms mm -hmm. of these Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteria. Yeah. Which so also I, wind up in the lungs of cystic fibrosis patients. Other people say, we're right. talk So about. it may not be familiar to everybody Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It's familiar to me, which is not surprising because um, I see patients, you know, I've seen patients my whole life and a lot of them um, will get infections with Pseudomonas. Some of them, you know, will be a skin infection because they went in a pond or a hot yes. tub that wasn't well cared for or something like that. And then others can be much, much more serious than that. Um, most especially as I, as I know it is in the lungs of people with, with this terrible disease called cystic fibrosis, right? They have a disease that makes their lungs vulnerable and they get filled up with mucus. And then that mucus becomes a, I don't know, like an agar plate, like a Pretty growth much. medium, right? For pseudomonas. Then you give them antibiotics, give them antibiotics, give them antibiotics. And all of a sudden the pseudomonas is resistant, shielded against all those antibiotics. And these people are in big, big trouble. Exactly. They're in right? big trouble either because they're taking antibiotics to try and cure a problem it's not working and the bacteria in them are building up as you say this resistance to antibiotics yeah. worse yet they could just be living in their home and get colonized by something that's already resistant to antibiotics oh, so the resistance doesn't problem. have to develop in the person no it can just pick it up this is the problem you can go out to an apple tree mm -hmm. and get bacteria off of it that are maybe infecting the apple tree but suddenly you see that they're resistant to antibiotics used in hospitals yeah so this is just increasingly widespread in the bacterial world around us regardless of whether it's something that infects a human straight away or they could do that yeah so that is frightening so 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 here we are we're in a lab bench we have virally uh, you know, we have a bunch of viruses in, in pond water, and then we have resistant strains, these yeah. dangerous pseudomonas strains. Now, what's the next step? Sure. So the next step is these resistant strains of bacteria. We grow them on what are called auger plates. It mm -hmm. just lets us grow them to high density in something called a lawn. And what we would do is take these little bits of volume from the lake water, like mm -hmm. from Dodge Pond, and yeah. we spot it on the lawn. Yeah. We literally put drops on the lawn to see if there's any clearing. Uh -huh. and what that clearing indicates is that the phages in the water are killing these bacteria successfully and then spreading to neighboring cells on the lawn and killing them also. And they become a visible spot. We call that a plaque. Uh -huh. So we're really doing these very kind of old school methods yeah, to sounds, just look for killing. It, I mean, in, in microbiology class, I remember we took auger plates and grew different bugs on them and we put different stuff. We put like either discs soaked in antibiotics and watched how like the circle of inhibition. Of clearing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we would use garlic and ginger and, you know, natural products to see. And garlic actually turns out works very well. There's a bunch of good plant antimicrobials. But now you're talking about using a virus for that. So you're inoculating that plate, putting it on the lawn, so to speak. And then you start noticing like, whoa, this pond yes. water is like killing this exactly. impossible to kill pseudomonas. Yeah. Right? And then we would take that material and put it through a filter mm -hmm. so that we know we remove anything other than virus size. Uh -huh. And then we start to really do our work as microbiologists of figuring out, you know, what is this thing? Is it new to science? And can I learn something about its genetics, et cetera. So we, we do what's called characterization. We, mm -hmm. we would want to know a lot about these obscure phages coming from some weird lake in yeah, Connecticut right. and get some confidence that we really know something about them before yeah. we'd ever think of deploying them in a person to try right, and solve right, a problem. Right. So I, I guess kind of a, a, t a corollary question here is like, how does the pseudomonas, and maybe there's different ways, but how does the pseudomonas 
um, avoid being killed by the antibiotics? Yeah. Like, how does it figure that out? I mean, it's not really thinking, but like it evolves, I suppose. Yeah. And, and it's kind of what you said earlier about bacteria have what are called fast generation times. Anytime something in biology makes a copy of itself, mm -hmm. there's a possibility for a mutation. Yeah. And that just means that it's going to be a variant that's different than what started with. Yeah. And some variants solve problems in nature better than others. So basically, the world is full of bacteria that are just kind of mutating and being born lucky. Mm -hmm. They're able to thrive better in a world full of antibiotics, mm -hmm. and those are the ones that cause us problems in yeah. hospitals, et cetera. And they do it in very specific ways that you yes. know about, right? I yes, mean, they know it in ways that are very well understood at this point, especially uh, if they are well-studied bacteria. They yeah. undergo particular changes, mutations in particular genes that do things like prevent the antibiotic from entering the cell, uh -huh. or they form structures. It's like uh, closing a window. Yeah, it's like closing a window. Yeah. If there's a portal that was there to begin with, yeah. they're not interested the portal being there they're closing it off yeah. or they'll start to assemble together and kind of extrude stuff from the cell that makes it a big sticky goopy mess uh -huh. that antibiotics can't penetrate that's uh -huh. called a biofilm uh -huh. so that's a big problem in a lot of yep. uh, infected people is that yeah. they have chronic biofilm infections hey if you like what you are hearing on the show today stay in touch you can do that as easy as sending a quick text that says pod to this number 51472 and that will allow you to join the what's your medicine community text pod to 51472 right now and we'll jump back into the show and then isn't there a way that they can kind of like let the antibiotic come in through the window and then just like puke it out yeah yeah so this is the thing that we were really interested yeah. in um yeah, there are these kind of proteins that do this work. Uh -huh. So if an antibiotic does make it in, yeah. some bacteria will just say, yep, you're out of here. And yeah. they push it right out. And they do this against lots of different drugs. So not just penicillin. They yeah. do it against a bunch of a variety of drugs. Those are the real scary superbugs. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't control them because they've got these mechanisms, these properties to just push antibiotics out of the cell. Right. You got the antibiotic in, in and then it has like, what's it called? An efflux pump or something? Exactly. It just pumps it right on It out just of there. pumps it out. So yeah. these efflux pumps are particularly worrisome as yeah. bacteria have them. Yeah. That's right. So we were, if we can go yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. talk about So the in viruses. Dodge Pond, we, yeah. we were looking to find phages for the first time because we had an idea that if you have these bacteria that have efflux pumps and are kicking antibiotics out all the time, can you find phages that are good at killing them? Mm -hmm. And are they good at killing them they're interacting with these efflux pumps. Mm. So what we predicted is that these phages would interact with the bacteria that have efflux pumps. And what are the bacteria they're going to do? They're going to mutate and solve the problem. And they might get rid of the efflux pumps. Mm. Well, guess what? If they do that, they're no longer antibiotic resistant. They become sensitized to antibiotics. Mm. So we're basically leveraging the phages to kill the bacteria in the classic sense. But we know that the bacteria are prone to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. But they're going to solve a problem in the way that we predicted. Right. And they're going to become less resistant to antibiotics rather than more resistant. And we get kind of like a double-edged sword when we're trying to solve yeah. the problem. It, like, it, it actually like makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up hearing you talk about it because it's just it, this is the part that feels science fiction, right? That like you're able to find a virus that infects a bacteria, causes a change in that bacteria where it's trying to defend itself from this virus because it's being killed. And then it does. It defends itself. And when it does this defense, when it puts up this shield, that shield now makes it vulnerable to the antibiotics 
that it used to just pump right yes. out. Right? And people ask me all the time, well, you know, aren't bacteria smarter than that? You know, they're going to kind of solve one problem but leave themselves vulnerable to another one. I was like, well, that's just the way evolution works. Yeah. Evolution solves problems that are immediate problems. Right. They don't have a crystal ball to yeah. see that this would be not a great solution yeah. down, down the line. Right, right. And the immediate problem is this phage just came through the window and is killing me, right? Yes. So yes. the next generation needs to quickly figure out how to not get killed by that phage. And they one way- figure it out very quickly. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole bacterial population dies. Right. And this is, again, where the mutation and the generation time of bacteria help them solve problems quickly. But, you know, but they can solve these problems through evolution yeah. on my terms. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. You know, right. If they're going to solve it however they want, good for them. Yeah. I'm not going to take that. Right. I'm trying to develop phage therapy right. to do it in a particular way. Right. So now we are, you just used the words, I think, for the first time in our conversation, phage therapy, right? So you found in Dodge Pond this virus that causes this change in pseudomonas populations such that they become vulnerable again, right? Yes. Like these, these, these organisms that are killing lots of people every year and making them terribly, terribly sick. Um, and you found a virus that uh, ch causes a, a, a evolutionary change in this particular bacteria, making it more sensitive to antibiotics. So that, that to me starts to speak to, and, I, and we can talk about this now, like, all right, there's, there's people out there that, that need this. I mean, this virus is kind of scary. Like, I, I don't know if I'd want to be infected with a virus from a pond, but I also, if I was in the situation that some of these people are in, it's dire. And so it's a, it's a, it's a this is what surprised me the most. So I'm not a physician, you know, I'm a basic researcher and I start to stumble into these observations. Yeah. And I strike up conversations with my colleagues at Yale who are physicians and yeah. see these patients all the time. Yeah. And they quickly convince me, you know what? I've got some volunteers for you. Mm. I'm sure these individuals would welcome some good news yeah. because I, the doctors don't I got have anything to tell them. They <laughs> yeah, got nothing right. to tell them. Yeah. So um, th those were our first cases where people who had these unsolvable infection problems. Yeah. And we had some enlightened physician colleagues willing to talk with their patients about the possibilities, very low risk. Yeah. I think historically we could talk about that. Phage therapy tends to pose very low risks. Mm -hmm. How effective it is is really the golden question. Right. Can you make it very effective in people? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into it because I think these stories really kind of like humanize mm. um, this situation. Right, right now we're talking about something that feels sciencey, right? Like it's happening in a lab and genetics and viruses and efflux pumps and stuff. But like what this show is about is like, it's about, it's about medicine <laughs> yeah. in, in, in all of its forms. Right. Yeah. And here we're talking about using viruses as medicine, not in a laboratory and in a, in an agar plate on the lawn, so to speak, but in a, in a real human. And, and I think that's where my interest really gets peaked. And so let's start with that very first patient. Sure. I mean, you know, here we are, we've got this virus. We think it's, we think it's a good thing, right? It's going to, it's going to help this pseudomonas problem. Right. So we predicted that this, kind of virus we could discover would help solve the pseudomonas problem. We start talking with the head of surgery at Yale, mm -hmm. and he tells us, oh, that's a pretty amazing idea. And I have a man who I've been trying to treat who had an aortic arch replacement. So a portion of his heart was swapped out through surgery. Which, yeah, usually there's a big bulging aneurysm or something, and they replace it with like a, a liner, right? Like a yes. Teflon version. And yeah. the problem is Teflon, bacteria kind of like Teflon. Yeah. That's what we've learned. They so it's good it. for surgery, but yeah. they'll say, oh, well, that's yeah. a nice thing for me to stick to and grow on and cause a chronic it's problem. It's like having an agar plate in your Correct. chest. Kind of attractive to bacteria. So by the time this man's surgeon figured out that this man's name was Ali, uh, had this problem, is because they kind of opened him up to explore it, and by then they figured out his sternum had already eroded away. Oh my goodness! So he was—he had such a raging infection that it 
literally was starting to be shocking that this man was alive. Mm. He had been working a lot of, t- of his life as an ophthalmologist in New Haven, but th- those times were in the past because he kept struggling with this disease of the infection problem that couldn't be solved right. with antibiotics. They solved the aorta problem, whatever he needed that surgery for, and now this new prosthetic aorta that he had just had... Which I would contend is like the good and bad news of surgeries that are increasingly prevalent put foreign stuff into the human body to solve a problem. But if that meets this antibiotic resistance issue in bacteria, you've got a big collision course issue there. Right. Because suddenly you've got more and more infections. So here's this guy who's got his sternum, which is the main breastbone here, being eaten away by an infection. Yes. Basically that no antibiotics can kill. No antibiotics can cure. And it was not ethical to have him go through the surgery again. He was too elderly and infirmed in the uh, opinion of his surgeon yeah. to be put through that again because likely he would not survive the surgery. Mm-hmm. So literally they had no options. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking with people. I mean, I have to emphasize, this was not a planned discussion with the head of surgery. Yeah. We were just kind of wandering around Yale campus like, like we do talking to people. Yeah. And we were like at the food trucks. And pretty much, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just a spontaneous conversation. Yeah. And we f- quickly figured out something that was not known to me, uh-huh. is that if you... Find a possible experimental solution. It is possible to go through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Mm. with a plea to say, look, this is an emergency. Should we maybe try this experimentally on somebody who deserves this attention? Long story short, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So we got the approval to do this, and the surgeon was in the room. Can we talk a little about the the administrator? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So the, the really interesting thing is we knew exactly where the infection was, right? So you can see it in a... Uh, x-ray, et cetera. Um, but what we want to do is take a syringe and take the phage and deploy it or push it you know, right at the site of where the infection was happening. And when they tried to do this, they reached scar tissue. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't go through to, Just too thick they couldn't and fibrous get through this to get man's chest to. wall. Yeah. So they took advantage of a kind of a gruesome feature of his infection. Mm-hmm. It was such a raging infection and it had broken through the chest wall and it was oozing out. Fistula, it's called a fistula. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So just, they took they burrowed a, a hole through the infection, just you know, and was draining through a hole in his in his chest. Correct. It is so cru- imagine this gruesome. man; he's in the operating room, he's laying on his back, and this fistula is like suddenly the wait a minute, we can't reach the infection. Let's try taking this syringe and putting it into the entry of where the fistula is oozing out. Wow! And they deployed the phage that way, traveled. To the site of the infection. Yeah, it was a burrow right down to it. It was a direct route. Yeah. And that allowed the phage to reach the infection. They delivered a useless antibiotic, right? This man was resistant. His infection was resistant to this antibiotic. Mm -hmm. But we were predicting that the leftover bacteria would be changed to be sensitive to the antibiotic. So we therefore deployed it at the same time. Uh And I wouldn't be talking about it had it not worked. Yeah. It worked in one dose. It cleared his infection. It's unbelievable. He literally, I mean, I have to say, it did save his life Mm because he was going to succumb to this eventually. And he went back to work. So he had high quality of life as an ophthalmologist in New Haven, whereas literally the man was sitting around kind of waiting to die. So this, this is kind of the extent of the awfulness of the infection problems that we've been trying to solve. Not all of them are aortic arch replacements. We've been doing others that we could talk about, Mm -hmm. but in the end, what shocked me is that this anecdote that I just went through, 
you know, this is for every patient a very personal story of what yeah. they're going through yeah. and how they've reached an end to their list of options. Yeah. So this is literally what you call personalized medicine. Right, right. That's where we go, right? It seems like, and and it's to be fair, you're not injecting pond water into this fistula, <laughs> oh, right? Oh, yes, I should you're, say that. You're <laughs> injecting, injecting a, a purified version of this phage, which has been, you know, modified, uh, you know, in, in ways that are beyond the scope of our discussion. Yes. And then mixed with probably some saline or something like that, right, with an antibiotic. And it's, it's amazing. Um, his case seems like a fairly unusual one. I think the more common... Um, and that I've seen in my practice that I've known people in my own life is cystic fibrosis, yes. this lung disease. How do you, so those, those people have lungs that, that, that basically are like agar plates also, yeah, they right? They're, they're just they're very lungs. attractive to bacterial infections. Yeah. 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 And they live their lives on a daily basis, but they have a heavy, heavy drug regimen to try and protect vulnerable parts of their body, especially yeah. their lungs. They have to take breath, right. right? They have to live their life. Yeah. So as these... Superbugs increasingly show up in the lungs of cystic fibrosis patients. Yeah. They need help aside from antibiotics, which technically are not working. So yeah. this is the patient community we've worked with the most. Mm -hmm. And we've used technology that I think is highly cool and a little science fiction-y. They yeah. inhale our phages. They inhale it. They inhale them. Yeah. They, so they don't have a syringe administered or sure. directly in their bloodstream through IV or something. Mm. Instead, they use an apparatus called a nebulizer, which yeah, is... Yeah, like what asthma people use. Yeah, like correct. a little inhaler machine. Yeah, that. a little machine yeah. that people often take to administer drugs to the lungs. We yeah. just... It's, it's kind of like you add a little phage to that. Uh -huh. And it delivers to the site of the infection, and you rely on the fact that these phages are hitting bacteria, making copies of themselves, mm -hmm. and spreading in the three dimension of the lung. Amazing. And it works. It works for them, too. It yeah. works for them, too. Yeah. And it's very hard with people who have cystic fibrosis to completely clear an infection, as you know. Yeah. So there, often, the endpoint we're trying to achieve is a huge reduction, just like a calm it down, make it less life-threatening. Yeah. But we're willing to live with, and they are willing to live with as patients, a little kind of a percolation of these bacteria through time that are not causing any harm currently it seems like in some of those cases that i've seen too they they're so sick that they need even a more intense intervention like a lung transplant yes. commonly used in the in these patients if they can get one if they can get on the list if they're a right match and everything but sometimes they're so sick that they that they are not a good surgical candidate right they can't get a lung transplant so is this something that could like be presumably like used to knock back the bacteria so that to increase their candidacy. That is exactly for, for right. Surgery. So some people who would like to be on a lung transplant list but mm -hmm. can't get there because they've got a raging bacterial infection, yeah. we can get them on a list. Mm -hmm. Better yet, if they are already on a lung transplant list but they're facing an infection for which antibiotics can't calm their problem yeah. to even have a transplant, mm -hmm. We sometimes just save the lungs from having to be transplanted. Yeah, right. Which is a, that's a better outcome. That's right? a huge, right? Yeah, I mean, because not everybody right, right, you know right, right. has a transplanted organ. It's kind of them. remarkable to think like, oh, a successful treatment is that I become a candidate to get my lung transplanted. I mean, that's that's a that's a really yeah. As your uh, listeners uh, can probably understand, I mean, lung, organ transplants are not trivial, and no. sometimes they get rejected. Yeah. So you wait forever to be on a list. You get a 
transplant and yeah. it doesn't take and then yeah. you're kind of back to the same problem and then even if it does take you're now on immunosuppressant drugs which make your immune system disabled so you're at risk for infections for the rest of your including life including antibiotic resistant bacteria of course so you just right. sort of so get to the circular here problem. we go around and around and yeah. around um but the but the personalization there it, it is 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 just remarkable do they the, the cf patients i i think i understand that pseudomonas is the main critter that gets their lungs yes. as well yeah. when they get to a certain age characteristically yeah. of life yeah uh pseudomonas original and the problems of antibiotic-resistant infections tend to be the most common ones. Uh-huh. I guess I should add, since we're talking about CF uh, community, yeah. um, in a different portion of their life could be a different bacterium, especially when they're young. Mm. Staphylococcus aureus, which most listeners recognize MRSA yeah. as a term. That's yeah. a particular term for a kind of a resistance in Staph aureus. We've been helping people with those problems I was just going to ask you that because, you know, Pseudomonas, most people don't know of it, but MRSA, I think a lot of people have heard of. MRSA is methicillin-resistant staph aureus, right? Staph infection is, is, is the term a lot of people have heard. So it's not just Pseudomonas that you're working on. Like, what are the other bacteria Correct. that are starting to... So mostly staph aureus, like you just mentioned, um, Puriginosa, and also Klebsiella pneumoniae uh-huh. is one that we're going after. Yeah. Um, to a less extent, pathogenic... Escherichia coli, pathogenic E. coli, e. coli yeah, yeah. which is a hard target to remove because it's closely related to something that does you good within mm. your microbiome. Mm. So you kind of have to go after it with a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer. Yeah. But the, the point is we are increasingly interested in helping people with a variety of antibiotic resistance problems. And we're trying to cover as much ground as we can, which is challenging. Yeah, I'm sure. Are you, I I can only imagine, I mean, people who are in desperate circumstances with, especially with chronic bacterial uh, infections that are resistant antibiotics, like they're out there looking for help, looking for salvation, really. So I can only imagine that like your office, your lab is just getting calls. Like, Are you getting calls from people who are just like, can you give it to me? Oh, like, oh yeah. That- and within a single week, I mean, we get in the teens, if not the 20s, really? of yeah. people reaching out. Now, to be clear, many of them, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, would not technically constitute it as an emergency. Mm-hmm. And that's a little hard for me to say, because if somebody has a 40-year running bladder infection yeah. and they can't control it with antibiotics... They've got very poor quality of life. It's an emergency right? for them. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's this is where it starts to be a gray area of what do you constitute an emergency. Yeah. But we are mostly working with people who are facing end-of-life decisions uh-huh. because they've completely run out of options yeah. and the acute you know, moving into the next category is imminent. Yeah. So they seem like they're kind of really at the end. Right, right. So we would like to help as many people as possible, and we are literally changing our paperwork to help those who are more to the side of the 40-year running bladder infection yeah. with low quality of life. Sure. So what what is it? I mean, and I understand where the FDA is coming in here, right? This is new. It's experimental. It's a little scary. It hasn't been studied in a big, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial kind of thing. So they're not ready to just say, yeah, let's go for it. Let's inject pond water in everyone, exactly. right? I mean, like, you know, yes. um, so... What 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 does the future hold? Like, I mean, here we are. You've got this lab. There's lots of people down at Yale working on this and all over the world, yes. right? Not yes. just here. Um, what, what do you predict yeah. like, in the future? So what for do- me, the next steps are to continue what we're doing, which is personalized medicine, trying to do it more at scale. Mm-hmm. I would say there's about four or five places in the USA. Um, only one is really trying to do it a bit more at scale at mm-hmm. Baylor College of Medicine. But the idea is we can keep doing what we're doing. But mm-hmm. that's not good enough. You know, there are more people who need the help. Mm. So what you mentioned a moment ago, placebo, double-blind trials, you know, we're starting to do those. Mm. So we just wrapped up a clinical trial. Others have done it as well to look at safety and efficacy in 
volunteers who might have vulnerabilities. Like yeah. they could be cystic fibrosis individuals mm-hmm. who don't currently face hospitalization, yeah. but they want to be in a trial to look at the safety and efficacy. Sure. Of so that's like the real golden endpoint. If these are shown to be good outcomes, then the U.S. FDA is going to be saying, oh, congratulations. Now you can label it as a drug mm-hmm. and sell it commercially. Right. So that's the way our current medical infrastructure works, whether that's good or bad. That's the way it's. Yeah, working. that's the that's the thinking, and it's it's um it's it's not um, wouldn't be wise for anybody to go get pond water themselves, no, right? Please this don't do like, that. You know, please don't <laughs> do that. Especially yeah, at my suggestion. Right. Please don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is very very sophisticated, and the future looks really. I mean, it's it's interesting. We covered a lot of ground, and I so appreciate the how articulate you are about it, and how um, you made an exceedingly complex subject. I think feel very digestible. Oh, thank you. Um, and it's it's going to be fascinating to see. I mean. And, and, and I, I really like how you know I appreciate this conversation. We had parts in there that are kind of ominous, right? Like it's a little scary. It is a little scary. I'm, I'm by the way, not into fear mongering. I don't think you are either. No, but like, there is reason to be a little bit up at night, so to speak, yes. about this concerns about the you know antibiotic resistant strains. Yeah. We're using so many antibiotics. Both and, and this a point that I think it deserves to be made here is it's not just people who are taking antibiotics. In for a respiratory infection they didn't need. I think most of the antibiotics are being used on livestock. Exactly. You know, they're all over. We're just using them. We wipe our surfaces with them. Like we just like we're, we're antibiotic crazy. We you know? are. We have become, and I think that's gotten us into trouble. And yeah, that's a little dark and a little bit scary. Um, and so, but but you know, as, as me with a, I'm, I'm an optimist. You know, I think yeah. generally speaking, um, that it's nice to be able to see that, like, wow, like science, technology, and even the natural world, right? Whether it's uh, in this case viruses, um, there's solutions out there. It's, a, it's amazing that you're doing this work. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm very into bio-inspired solutions. Mm-hmm. I think it traces back to my interest in biodiversity. Yeah. If kind of problem solving has happened in the natural world, why not capitalize on yeah. it? I think that that's a completely legit thing to shoot for. Yeah. But if I could just for a moment say something about the antibiotic resistance crisis, I agree. Yeah. You know, if there's something that keeps me awake at night, it is that. And for the average household and the person you stop on the street to appreciate it as a problem, I can understand why that's, we're not quite there yet. And I always kind of create this analogy with cancer. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell people cancer is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they see it in movies, they experience it themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So they know in the average household around the world, cancer is a very bad thing. Mm-hmm. This is what we are approaching with antibiotic resistance. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that most people don't know it yet. Yeah. And when it happens that it's hitting the average household, it's kind of late in the game. Yeah. So we're trying to get this technology developed and look at alternatives way ahead. Well, I overstated that. I'll just say ahead uh-huh. of when it's going to hit the average household. Right, right. And I think some of us, myself included, can appreciate the gravity of this because I've seen it. I've seen people who, um, one fairly recent example um, of a woman who got a small little abrasion on her leg. You know, I think she bumped into the bumper of her car or something. It was like not even a big deal, you know, a little scrape on her leg. I don't even think it deserved a Band-Aid. And then the next day it didn't look so good. And then the next day it looked even worse. And 
She thankfully didn't lose her leg, but the only reason why she didn't was because they deployed a rapid sort of surgical trauma team and debrided this thing and like had to open up her leg and really carve out a big chunk of it to get, because this antibiotic resistant strain was just spreading through her leg like wildfire. And it was scary and it happened super, super fast. And this was an otherwise healthy person who, you know, maybe had a little bit of, of some minor health issues, but nothing, you know, she was generally a healthy person who got a scrape, not from anything scary or weird or in a hospital or something, just, you know. I, that is a wonderful example because I think the audience can understand how that could happen anywhere in the world. Yeah. And the question is, are you going to even have a team of medical professionals who could help solve that problem? Yeah. Or are you going to be in an under-resourced uh, community yeah. where that stuff is just not there? Right. So that's how you can explain amputations and death yeah. in a lot of people with yeah. an increasing likelihood right. as we yeah. move forward. And so that part's frightening. And that that is the price, I think, that we're paying for the injudicious, right? The maybe irresponsible use of antibiotics. I get it that we were like, you know, got excited about these things and they seem like a panacea like so many of these new things do. And then we realize, ooh, this isn't as perfect as we thought. I agree. Know. I mean, we're always thinking we're more enlightened than we are. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think to me, developing this new technology is awesome. Awesome, but I never want to lose sight of the basic research. You kind of have to understand things sure. in great detail yeah. to really develop them as to their best potential. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think we have to be very careful. We've made some missteps with antibiotics. We've way overused them and we've created a problem. I don't foresee that same problem if you use phages around the world. Mm -hmm. They're too specific to their targets. Yeah. I don't want to get into some kind of deep uh, jargony stuff there. But I, I think that it is promising. Phage therapy is promising. I'm also an optimist. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's a panacea. Yeah. It's going to have to be nuanced and used in some cases well. Yeah. In other cases, it may be inappropriate. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't like to overpromise with the technology, but I think it's got an amazing potential. Yeah. And the more we know about it, it's safe and pretty effective. Right, right. So yeah, it seems to me that it fits right in. I mean, I think of, I always think of a, what I call a hierarchy of therapeutics, right? It's sort of a foundational naturopathic principle that like when people are looking for a solution to a medical problem or a health kind of problem, you know, you start at the basics, which is like your own diet, your lifestyle, you know, your stress management, your sleep, all these kinds of things. And then you kind of move on up the ladder. And I think, and that's kind of the premise of this, not just this conversation, but this show in general is that like that everything on that ladder is is medicine right yes. like and it should probably be used in a fairly like um, methodical or hierarchical kind of way appropriate for whatever the problem is um, and and I would put I don't know where you would put it but like to me especially given the tech uh, and the the research that's involved in it I would put phage therapy pretty high up there right, right. like it's right. a high rung therapy um, but Man, it's really nice to have a high rung when you have a problem that's really up high. I, I right? agree, and, and yeah. you're the expert, but I consider it more to the side of naturopathic. I mean, what we definitely underestimate is, I mean, you're walking around with lots of phages in your body. Yeah. And the question is, how much good are they doing you mm -hmm. in association with the other stuff in your microbiome? Sure. That stuff is way, way understudied. Yeah. I mean... Bacteria in our microbiomes do deserve attention. Yes. But the other players are not getting the research attention they deserve. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that'll be another show. I'll have you know, the, another show entirely. I mean, the, the GI microbiome and all yes. the, the bacterial organisms. And we basically almost always are just talking about the bacteria. Now they're starting to be labs that are studying them, showing you which ones are there based on all sorts of different 
probably questionable technologies to say, you know, to assess people's microbiomes. Then there's all sorts of probiotic and prebiotic type of interventions, but no one's talking about viruses. No, they're not. And I mean, the fancy word for this is dysbiosis. You know, if you have this microbiome and you can recognize what the players are as species, but are they out of whack? Yeah. Are they like out of relative, you know, numbers that seem to be correlated with some disease? Yeah. Well, guess what? will put them back into alignment. Phages. Yeah. You know, if you find the phages against the specific ones that are too it. prevalent, you yeah. knock them down, you get out of the dysbiosis back to the kind of what we think is a good set stage. Yeah. Get, get uh, for, for uh, the human gut microbiome. You know example. what you just made me, made me think of? And I think it's a good way to, to kind of wind up our conversation is that like you, you're right. Dysbiosis, this is this, this, is, this out of whack of our microbiome. And so much of at least the research that I'm aware of in is that, dysbiosis as we're describing is is a big cause of a lot of medical problems yes. right like not just gi problems but problems everywhere immunologic problems psychiatric problems yeah. skin problems neurological immune, right amazing. so the the G, the gut brain the gut everything right it, it influences and one of the big simply stated ways to describe this problem is a lack of diversity right we're yes. seeing like increasing like narrow populations right like the gi microbiome much like our planet is supposed to be diverse all these different species almost like a for like a rainforest with trees and bushes and plants and flowers and all this different stuff. And as we use too many antibiotics and maybe have all kinds of dietary issues and other kinds of problems and toxins in our world, we see declining biodiversity. And here we are talking about using viruses to bring some of that diversity. I mean, back. ecology, we're talking about if you, how do you keep a tropical forest or something else healthy? It's often how many community members does it have? Yeah. And it just kind of gets a resiliency mm. to it and a stability. Yeah. For sure, with the human microbiome, this yeah. is what's emerging is that when it's out of whack, it needs to be more kind of specious. It needs to have more members of the community yep. to bring it back into alignment. Yeah. So I'm really excited for the future. Yeah, totally. Shout out for diversity, right? Yeah, in all, in absolutely. All another form it. of diversity. That's <laughs> indeed, a good one. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. Yeah, diversity is medicine, right? Exactly. We'll have another episode about that. <laughs> Love it. Oh, Paul. Well, this was a this is a treat. I learned a ton. I hope that all Thank of you. my listeners out there learned a ton. And I hope that you got that same little tickle oh, yeah. on the back of your neck uh, that I did uh, in this conversation. This is remarkable stuff stuff um kudos to to a job well done it's amazing work and um uh yeah uh, uh, big props to you for doing i greatly it. appreciate the opportunity and thanks everybody for listening yeah this is a big treat I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. You can find the link to Dr. Turner's lab in the show notes. And if you found it even as close to as fascinating as I did, please give us a like and a review. Those reviews really, really help. And also, if you want to get early access to new episodes, giveaways, and more, sign up to my free What's Your Medicine podcast club. All you have to do to do that is text P-O-D to 51472 or head on over to upwellness.com slash podcast to sign up now. And if you want to stay in touch in between episodes, follow me on social at Dr. Josh Levitt.